This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas. All right, today is... um, sort of an emergency update on what's happening in Sudan. We're going to be joined by Brad Phillips, the president and founder of the Persecution Project Foundation. Brad has been in Sudan for over two decades, serving the people there, drilling wells, building hospitals, advocating for vulnerable ethnic minorities, standing up for Christians. He's just a great hero, and there's nobody that you would want to talk to that would have more information on what's happening in Sudan right now than Brad. So we talked to him in Africa. So if the connection's not the best for that, I apologize. And before we get to the update on what is happening in Sudan, the brutal coup, the arrest of civilian leaders, and the crackdown on civilians protesting in the streets, I want to give you a quick update on what's happening in Afghanistan. Thanks to your support, the Vulnerable People Project is continuing to get people out of Afghanistan. Just this week, we, um, two very important people on our list were able to, to make it out of Afghanistan. One was an American who's going to hopefully be on my show next week and tell his story. The other is somebody who is an Afghan, he's Afghan and Jewish. And we haven't talked a lot about him, but he is now out. He is, um, safer. He might be in a place where he can't tell his whole story yet. Um, but we hope to tell his story. So, our organization, this is what we've been doing. If you've been supporting us, and you go, what, what, what did you do with my donation? Because we, we received so many folks have donated in the past couple of weeks to support our Afghan relief mission. This is what we're doing right now. Our organization is delivering cell phones and food and cash to people in safe houses in Kabul. This is happening right now. You know, some people are communicating with our State Department, but they're running out of cell phone credits. They've run out of money. They've run out of food. We are one of the only organizations that I know of that can actually has a system to deliver money and, and food and cell phones and cell phone credits that people can use on their phones in Afghanistan. So that's one thing we're doing. Then we're evacuating people over land. We're also evacuating people on planes. And then once we get them to safer countries, uh, or we call them lily pads, uh, we are now involved in resettling people in these lily pads in these safer countries to their new home. And so this is what we've been doing. Thanks to you. Thanks to your support. That's where we are. This show, we've been so hyper-focused on Afghanistan. A lot of our friends in Iraq and in, 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 in Sudan and Nigeria and Arme- the Armenians are like, hey, why aren't we talking about Azerbaijan? So there's so much happening. The world is on fire. But we could not let a week go by without addressing what's happening in Sudan. So I'm grateful that Brad came on in the middle of the night, his time, to record the show. And uh, before I hit the road, this episode, as always, is being brought to you by Mike Lindell's MyPillow. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, use the code Jones, and you get deep discounts not only on the amazing pillow, but on every MyPillow product. Just go look at the website. You're going to be amazed at how many MyPillow products there are. My favorite, as you know, is the mattress topper. And you would want a mattress topper this fall. How are you going to make it through fall without a MyPillow mattress topper? I do not know. Go to MyPillow.com. Use the code Jones, and you don't have to find out. This episode is also being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. Go to our website, thegreatcampaign.org. And we are in an aggressive fundraising mode. We need to raise another $98,000 this week to resettle Christians in Pakistan. Uh, Christians in Pakistan. What was that noise? (laughs) Christians in Pakistan were resettling in Brazil. And to keep up with all the demand, my goal is to, as quick as we find Christians and get visas, we resettle them. And it costs us $500 a month plus plane tickets per person for six months. And so with the current list, we need to raise $98,000 in the next seven days and to clear that list and resettle everyone that we have, all the Christians we have waiting to go to Brazil to get them resettled. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. $500 donation pays for one month 
of a Christian in their new home in Brazil. Um, so that's, that's a pretty good deal, right? Uh, Brazil has been a blessing to us. You know, the United States, it might take forever to get these Christians to the United States. So Brazil and other countries have stepped forward and, and made it possible for us to resettle Christians. So go to thegreatcampaign.org. Sorry for this long, meandering spiel at the end. Let's get on with the interview with Brad Phillips from the Persecution Project Foundation. The world is on fire, Sudan. It's the Jason Jones Show. Aloha, Brad Phillips. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Aloha, Jason. Well, hey, you're coming to me. I really think, I know it's very late your time, and uh, it's probably inconvenient for you to do this interview, but I think it's important. You know, we've, um, since you've been on the show in the past, you're the president and founder of the Persecution Project Foundation, and uh, since you've been on the show in the past, we get a lot of requests to have you back on for updates on what's happening in Sudan, what's happening in the Nuba Mountains, and with the present crisis of the crackdown by Islamists, in Sudan, I thought now would be a good time to have you on. I know it's late. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but if you could just give us an overview of the situation in Sudan and what's what's happening and what it means to us. Thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I think however late it is, I'm not going to have a. It's not easy to sleep right now. There's a lot happening in Sudan. Um, this morning, uh, we woke up to the news here in, uh, in Africa of, uh, a coup in Sudan, whether it's a coup or not is a whole discussion, but what's happened is the, there was a, uh, sovereign council. The government of Sudan was dissolved today by General Abdel Fattah Abdelrahman Burhan. Now, it just so happens that he was the creator of the sovereign council. Sovereign Council was a power-sharing deal that was uh, put forth in August of 2019 um, between the uh, Islamist uh, military government and um, civilians who had taken to the streets back in December of 2018. Um, and uh, they had this power-sharing deal. Under the power-sharing deal, it was 39 months from August of 2019 until the end of that deal, and after 21 months, the military was pledged to turn over power to the civilians. Well, that 21-month mark came and went back in June, and um, the civilian component of the Sovereign Council has been expressing um, their desire to uh, for the power to be handed to them for the last uh, few months, and, and the pressures mounted in the last couple of weeks. So this morning we woke up with the news that Burhan had uh, had um, arrested the Prime Minister Abdullah Hamduk, who is uh, uh, representing the civilian component in this council, had dissolved the uh, the Council of Ministers and the Sovereign Council and declared himself the ruler and um, had deployed his military in the streets to quell all of the uh, uh, civilian uh, protests and uprisings that are going on right now. How, how violent were, was, was the crackdown on the civilians? Are we, are we getting numbers of fatalities? Uh, well, the problem is right now is that they what they did is they shut down all of the media, all of the mobile phone networks, um, all the communications in Sudan have been shut down by by the regime, so it's very difficult um, to get information about what's happening. But back in uh, 2019, you know, you had in April of 2019, Omar al Bashir, who is an indicted war criminal, was removed from power by this transitional military council that was led by Al Burhan. Al Burhan happens to be Bashir's uh, colleague, his brother-in-law. Um, his close relative, and he removed Bashir and the transitional military council that he led grabbed the power. And then uh, the people went to the streets, and in June of 2019, uh, two months after Bashir was removed, they had a crackdown like the one that's happening today. And probably thousands of people were murdered by the regime um, in early June of 2019, and their bodies, hundreds of them, were thrown into the Nile River. 
during that time, the Rapid Support Force, which is the John Jaweed, um, the intelligence services that have their own police force, they all deployed in the streets. They actually went into the homes of people. They were murdering people inside of their homes. There was mass rapes going on. There's all kinds of atrocities that happened in June of 2019. And then uh, in August of the same year, the Sovereign Council was established as an attempt to convince the world that, that the regime um, was cooperating with civilians and that they were making a plan to transition to democracy. So all the speculation now about whether they're really going to hand over the civilians has been removed because this, uh, this uh, Sovereign Council has been abolished. And um, basically the same people who've been in charge for the last during the National Congress Party, the National Islamic Front, were in charge of the Transitional Council and Sovereign Council, and they're in charge now of uh, the government. Now, uh, Prime Minister, now Prime Minister Abdallah Hamduk, is he? Does he re- really authentically represent change, or are these sort of just different factions in the same sort of cohort, same yeah, sort so, of oligarchy? Yeah, it it it. What happened was is that you had a genuine popular uprising that took place in response to the, this oppressive regime. There was the food crisis, the bread crisis, economic collapse, but the imposition of Sharia in this kind of total, Islamic totalitarian system they had there is what people were rising up against. And um, what the Islamic movement did was to buy time was they set up this uh, sovereign council. And it was comprised of a mix of people. Um, a lot of the people that they that they uh, represented as as being part of the civilians were actually not, but there were some who were. Abdullah Hamdak was actually a genuine agent of change who did who did uh, represent um, the opposition on the civilian side. He's in prison right now. Some they he was arrested today, and it's because he was basically trying to enforce the deal, this power sharing deal, thing. hey, you guys are supposed to hand over to civilians. We're supposed to make a transition to democracy. It hasn't happened. We're months and months past the due date. Um, the military needs to go to the barracks. They need to be under the authority of a civilian uh, government. So he was arrested, and other members um, of the uh, civilian component were also arrested. There's certainly a lot of people in the Sovereign Council um, who were just uh, part of the old regime wearing new clothes. Now, how does Vice President Hemeti fit into this? He's the founder of the John Jaweed. He's the one, I guess, yeah. implementing the crackdown. Well, that's a good question. So who is Hemeti? Hemeti is Mohammed Hamdan Daglo. He's known as Hemeti. Al-Bashir referred to him as Hamaiti, which in Arabic means my protector. So. He was the creator and founder of the Janjaweed, and part of the strategy of Bashir, which he learned from the, uh, his predecessors, was divide and rule. And so he created the, the Janjaweed from this uh, Darfuris, uh Islamist uh, tribes people and, um, and set them out to basically divide the opposition in Darfur and also to divide the strength of the SAF. There's about 450,000 troops in the Sudan Armed Forces. And 150,000 of them are Janjaweed. Now, the Janjaweed um, did something smart, which was rebranding themselves a few years ago. They rebranded themselves, and they now call themselves the Rapid Support Force. But the Rapid Support Force are led by Hameti, Mohammed Hamdan Dagla. And uh, when the Transitional Military Council seized power um, uh, in 2019, um, Al-Burhan brought in Hameti. Now, Al-Burhan was, was, was part of the old regime, um, but he tried to present himself as an agent of change, and he brought in Hameti. And the reason he did that was because Hameti is a force within, within the SAF. And he needed him, just like Bashir needed him, he needed him to protect himself from other elements within the SAF that might want to push out Burhan. So, uh, effectively, Burhan has been the president, and Hameti has been the vice president since the coup in April 2015. And 
Hameti has been responsible for deploying a lot of these troops in the streets during these different crackdowns that have taken place in the last few years. He's also been responsible for prosecuting the war in the Nuba Mountains. Um, he's also responsible for prosecuting recent attacks in the Nuba Mountains that happened during the peace negotiations in Juba, for example, in August of 2020, were led by the forces of uh, the RSF. So uh, he's the leader of a, of a large militia. He also controls a lot of uh, financial resource. He controls a lot of gold mines. So he's real power there. He's, he's not only a threat uh, to the civilians, he's also a threat to Burhan. Burhan put him there, and, um, and he's the number two right now in Sudan. I don't know what his title is now, but under the Sovereign Council, he was vice president. Uh, Thomas Sowell said about every evil act in American foreign policy's modern history, there's a man from Harvard smack dab in the middle of it. And I think, would, is it fair to say that when you look at everything wicked that this regime has done, Hameti is smack dab in the middle of it? Jason, I'm sorry, I have a connection problem and I missed the last two sentences. All right, you got my Thomas Sowell quote, right? Behind every evil act uh, in American foreign policy, modern American foreign policy, there seems to be a man from Harvard smack dab in the middle of it. When we look at all of the wicked actions of this regime in, in Sudan, even this rebranded regime or with the rebranded Janjaweed, there Hameti seems to be smack dab in the middle of it. Well, um, Hameti, like I said, he's, uh, he, he's, he's a big part of it. He's, he's, uh, He's a warlord from Darfur. He's the leader of the Janjaweed that were notoriously responsible for all kinds of atrocities and war crimes and genocide in Darfur. And he was an agent of Bashir, and now he's an agent of Burhan. And um, uh, ironically, he was the person who was sent by Burhan to uh, conduct the uh, mediation and peace negotiations with the opposition that was hosted in South Sudan and Juba. Um, at the same time that he was prosecuting different military actions against the same people on the ground simultaneously. So um, these guys are all war criminals. And um, what's happened today is, again, is they've just the facade of, uh, of a transition to democracy and to civilian control has been removed and the intentions of the regime have, have really been exposed. And it, I think it's, hopefully it'll make it easier for the inter international community to distinguish between the good guys and the bad guys, because we seem to have a problem with that, especially the United States. Yeah, well, you, you tell me. We're now told that the Taliban is our, our frenemy and our partner. Exactly. This is exactly analogous to that. I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, what we've been told for the last two years is that these uh, National Congress Party war criminals who were part of this National Islamic Front, National Congress Party in Gaza for the last 30 years, because they have changed the name of their party, changed their uniforms, etc., and rebranded themselves, that all of a sudden they're now good guys. Um, and uh, so it's, 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 it, it does sound, it does ring very familiar. Now, I think for the average American, or the average person from around the world listening to this show, I mean, the, the world is on fire. Genocides and democides and civil wars are erupting around the globe. You said you, there's not going to be a lot of sleep for you tonight. You, your organization supports people in, in Sudan, in Darfur, in the Nuba Mountains. Yeah. What does this mean to the people that, you, you know, that your organization has been supporting for over two decades, been working with for over two decades? Well, uh, you know, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is is that the courage and resilience of the Sudanese people is coming to light. There's some very courageous and heroic young people, especially, that have taken to the streets in Khartoum and Omdurman who are facing down tanks and guns and, and just uh, a brutal uh, terrorist force um, because they, they want freedom of religion. They want freedom of worship. They want freedom of association. They want to be able to um, have to to live in a uh, uh, a country where you know they can maintain their culture, their religion, their beliefs, their identity, and have uh, just the basic freedoms that we take for granted. So those people are courageous, and we have an opportunity uh, again to be reminded that they're there. Um, you know, we don't know how this is going to shake out. Perhaps 
the international community will recognize that they've been backing the wrong horse. I'm, I'm doubtful about that. But um, uh, the the Sudan Professional Association, which uh, was responsible for the the uh, democratic the, the uh, December uprising of December 2018, is still there, and they're encouraging everybody to. to to go to the streets and to and to call for civilian rule and to call for a change in the system and that's what they're doing so we whenever uh, a regime like this shuts down the internet shuts down the phone network shuts down the media declares a state of emergency in the name of peace and stability you know they're up to no good so i'm sure there's a lot of murdering and raping and atrocities and war crimes that are taking place right now as we speak well, and that's why I wanted to have you on. Our big concern in Afghanistan was has been that they would shut down all forms of communication. Fortunately, you know, we, um, Brad, I don't know if you've been following our work, but we got our last American that we've been yeah. working with out of our uh, on our list was out two days ago, and now two more Americans found us. Wow. So now we have two other wow. Americans we're helping to get out. Uh, we're working with a lot of Christians and a lot of minorities. But our big fear has been... Um, the cell phone communication would be shut down. We've been able to create a network of just hand delivering cell phones to people because their credits are running out. Yeah. They're running out of money. Um, but the reason why I wanted to have you on, and, and I know it, it was at the last minute, this is all happening right now. I'm about to hit the road for a week. The reason I wanted to have you on is because there's not going to be a lot to report, right? So the news, the mainstream media, they're lazy and the information isn't there falling into their lap. So the average American yeah. is not going to be informed about the, what's happening in Sudan. Well, I think the, the good news is there, there actually has been a lot of news that has filtered out. The BBC and Al Jazeera have both actually had m most of the coverage on it. You're not going to see everything there. Certainly, we're not able to see what's being hidden by the regime, the, the dirty deeds that they're doing, that they're trying to cover up. We're not able to see all of that. But for sure, people know stuff is happening, and, and, and the Sudanese have different networks. There are places probably where uh, they can get to a VSAT, like a satellite internet. Uh, um, and some of these correspondents are managing to, to still uh, transmit. So um, for sure, we don't, we're not seeing everything, but there's a lot happening. Um, I think all of us are hopeful um, that... Uh, this regime is going to come to an end and uh, um, that space is going to be opened for uh, people to worship freely, associate freely, conduct business, own property, um, and live their lives. Um, but right now it's a very dangerous time and, uh, and no doubt there's, there's some terrible things happening on the ground right now. What's the time frame? How, I mean, how, how fast do you think this is all going to unfold? Well, you know, this, uh, this event today was not really a surprise because, as I said, there was this 39-month timetable for this sovereign council. And as soon as the deal was made, I, I think I had this conversation with you. We, we, we said they made this deal where they're claiming if there's a a power sharing between the military and the civilian, but everybody knows the military has the power. And under the deal, they have to hand over to the civilians after 21 months. And we all know that they're not going to do that. Well, the 21 months um, came and passed in June. And from June up to now, the pressure has been building because of that. And there were plenty of opportunities for um, Burhan and Hameti and the other radicals uh, from the old system who control the levers of power to really uh, demonstrate that they really were uh, going to be agents of change, but they didn't. They used every opportunity to, uh, to delay, to obstruct, to, um, to try to reframe the conversation. And what they got was, what, what they really wanted was debt forgiveness, normalization of relations, a bailout. They got the bailout. They got the normalization. They got the credibility. They got all that kind of stuff. The real opposition was divided. Um, many of them were absorbed into the military side um, and paid off. Um, the, re the, re the, the real opposition was marginalized um, and made irrelevant by the international community, which basically 
legitimized this regime. They legitimized Burhan and Hameti, even though they knew they were criminals. They gave them a massive bailout, $60 billion in debt forgiveness, billions and billions of dollars from the World Bank, the IMF, the European community, not to mention all the money that they're getting from the Saudis and Emiratis. So they got what they want. And so after they got what they want, there's no reason for them to follow through on any of their commitments or behave in a way differently than they've ever behaved before. There's no reason for people who have never kept a promise to all of a sudden keep a promise after they've gotten uh, what they wanted. So uh, they definitely played us. And now they've just well, I want to go back. Again I, I want to go back to when we had this conversation, when the power sharing agreement was announced and I called you. And I said, is this a good thing? This yeah. is a good thing, right? And you were laughing at me. <laughs> you were yeah. You're like, Jason, this is, you were, yeah. you were frustrated. You were exasperated. And you said, this is a joke. Yeah. This is a joke. There's, we're being played. That's the little yeah. words you were said to me. We're yeah. being played. We're being played. Now, let's, we yeah. have to remind the audience, yeah. this was during the Trump administration. Yeah. Right? So um, yeah. I yeah. had friends in the administration at the time. I had friends working with state. They were very excited about this power sharing agreement, and you right. you were you were absolutely exasperated. And even some of our mutual friends were very excited about this. Um, yep. how, how come you could see that we were being played, and this was a charade, and our well, State Department just missed it? Our intelligence agencies well, just missed well, it, or did they? Yeah, it, I, I, uh, yeah, or did they? Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of well-intended people who missed it, who are maybe observers and friends and um, who who hope for the best. They wanted to believe the headlines and the headlines in the news um, are very deceptive. Um, but um, but yeah, you know, you just have to if, if you if you're. If you see a guy like Kometi or a guy like Burhan, these people have blood all over them. They're war criminals. Um, and if you if you look at the Sudan history and you just look and you go back to the time of Nimiri, um, Nimiri started off, he was brought in by the Soviets as a this coalition between the Baathists, the Arabs, uh, uh, the Pan-Africanists and the Communist Party. He came in aligned with the Soviets. And then when the Soviet and during when he was aligned with the Soviets, he was um, jailing the Islamists. People like Hassan al-Turabi spent like five or six years in prison um, uh, under Nimeri. Hassan al-Turabi was one of the Muslim Brotherhood um, people who founded the National Islamic Front. Um, so when when Nimeri, uh, the Soviets tried to assassinate Nimeri in uh, uh, I think it was in 1981. And, um, and, and no, excuse me. It was in 1970. It was in the early 1970s, 1973. And after that, he decided, hey, maybe I don't want to align myself with the Soviets. Maybe I need to reach out to the Americans and the Chinese and the Islamists. So he released a lot of these guys from prison and he took Hassan al-Turabi and he made him his attorney general in 1977. And in 1977, Tarabi said, hey, OK, that's great. Thanks for you know, reaching out to us. But if you really want to be on our team, you need to impose Sharia law. And you got 88 books on your laws, uh, laws on your books that are not in compliance. So he, Nimeri started imposing Sharia law. And by 1983, they had the nationwide imposition of Sharia law with the uh, September laws of Nimeri. So now 1985, the, uh, the pressure built and the people went to the streets and there was a popular uprising in 1985 in Sudan to overthrow Nimeri, just like what happened in 2018 to overthrow Bashir. And guess what happened? A transitional military council came in in 1985, led by this general, Dahab, and they overthrew Nimeri. And uh, and they said we're gonna we're gonna make sure that there's stability and order in Sudan until such time as we can hand over to the civilians and have a democratic election. And this other guy emerged, who happened to be the brother-in-law of Hassan al-Turabi. His name was Sadiq Al-Mahdi, and he's the leader of this big group called the Ansar sect and the Uma Uma Party. Okay, he's another Islamist. He's descended from Al-Mahdi. Um, and uh, Saadi Kilmadi said, hey, these Sharia laws are not worthy 
of the paper that the ink is printed on. So he's kind of telling everybody, if you elect me in this election, I'm going to get rid of Sharia. So in 1986, they had an election. And guess what? The UMA party won by a landslide, 80% of the vote. And, has, and uh, Saadi Kiddomadi became the youngest prime minister of Sudan at the age of 30. So between 86 and 89, he was there as, prim- as uh, prime minister of Sudan. And guess what? Instead of getting rid of Sharia law, he further entrenched Sharia law and expanded Sharia law. And then in 1989, he handed the power back to his brother-in-law, Hassan el-Turabi, the former attorney general. And Hassan el-Turabi and Omar al-Bashir came to power in 1989. And that was the beginning of 30 years of the Ingaz, the National Islamic Front, that ended in 2019 when Burhan stepped in with the Transitional Military Council of 2019 and said, hey, we, we hear you people in the street. We're getting rid of this guy and we're going to hold power until such time as we, as it's stable enough for us to hand power back to the civilians. So it was an exact mirror repeat of what happened. And what people don't understand, or people do understand, I guess, in the intelligence community, is that it, it, it's, it, there are many, many different political parties, there are many different religious sects, but behind the institutions, behind the different parties, behind the legislature, behind the judiciary, behind the military, is Terracotta Islamia, it's the Islamic movement. And the Islamic movement has been the dominant force in Sudan since the British left in 1955. And the Muslim Brotherhood that, of Egypt which trained most of these guys, recruited them, brought them to Egypt, put them through training, and then sent them back to Sudan, have the strongest grip and hold on power in Sudan since 1955-1956. And yet, in all of that time, the people still want representative democracy run by civilians with religious freedom. They don't. They they want freedom. They don't want to be under a totalitarian system. They don't want to be under an Islamo-fascist system. They want the same freedoms that are enshrined in our Bill of Rights that we want. And they're willing to die for it. And the people mostly going into the streets right now in Khartoum are young people. They're teenagers, most of them. They're women. Women are leading the, the revolution or the counter-revolution in, in, uh, in Khartoum and Amdurman in those cities. And um, uh, it's disgraceful that we have not only stood to the side and watched it happen, we have funded these people. We, we, I was reading a couple of days ago about the IMET program where they were discussing the terms by which we were going to provide military training and cooperation with the Sudan government. And they're debating about how quickly to do it. So it's disgraceful and shameful just as what we've done in afghanistan how we are aligning ourselves with um like one of the biggest factories of political islam radical islam and terror that we've been fighting all over the world they sheltered they sheltered osama bin laden here here's the frustration you know these heroes these young heroes in the streets in khartoum they should be all over the mainstream media. We're not seeing them. They should be all over social media. We're not seeing them. Uh, the freedom, the, the, yeah. the, the, the Hong Kong, the freedom movement in Hong Kong. Uh, I just saw CNN did a story on the freedom movement in Hong Kong, and it seemed as if it was the CCP produced it. It had made them out to right. be agitators and troublemakers. We're finding out the same thing. Uh, those NBA players, for example, that are standing up to the CCP on behalf of the Uyghur, uh, our media is just calling out as troublemakers. And uh, well, there's there's some aspects of the media that are doing the same thing here. They're trying to make it look like, well, listen, Burhan was responding to all this kind of chaos and disorder and, and division within the opposition, division within the civilian component. And they were, you know, threatening stability in Sudan. And that's why he had to do this. So, I mean, th- these guys are clever. And, you know, at the beginning of the uprising in 20, uh, in, in December 2018, the real force behind the uprising was the Sudan Professional Association. So what did the regime do? What did the Islamic movement do? They created their own opposition called the Forces for Freedom of Change. 
And they took people, they peeled off people who were part of the real opposition, they paid them off, and they put them into the Forces for Freedom of Change. So then in the media, you only began hearing about the Forces for Freedom of Change, and you stopped hearing about the Sudan Professional Association, which was really the real force behind what happened then, and even the real force behind what's happening now, and has absolutely no representation in the Sovereign Council that was just dissolved. And outside of the BBC and Al Jazeera, in the Western press, I don't see any real serious desire to understand or communicate under, yeah. in a way that people can understand. Yeah, it's, it's true. And, and it's, it's difficult. You're obviously, we're competing with a lot of other news, and, and not everybody understands uh, or cares or has any interest in, in Sudan. And that's always been a challenge for, you know, the last 24 years that I've been involved with Sudan has been um, trying to communicate why um, it's relevant, why we should care, um, apart from our values as Americans, as far, apart from those values, which is really one of the big reasons, from a strategic point of view, why should we care? But Sudan has been a factory of radical Islam. It's not, you know, as you said, they hosted Carlos the Jackal, but not only that, this Islamic university that was founded by Hassan al-Turabi has turned out tens of thousands of jihad warriors to countries all over the world where we're doing battle in this war on terror. And um, so they've had, they've trained and supported elements in both Shia and Sunni um, radical Islam. And, um, you know, now their biggest supporters are the Saudis and the Emiratis. And they have their reasons for, for supporting Sudan. One of the reasons is, is that Bashir convinced the, the, you know, the royal families that he was going to protect them against the Muslim Brotherhood, even though the Muslim Brotherhood is, is heavily embedded in, in the, in, in, in the uh, Islamic movement there in Sudan. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, so, in, you know, in, uh, the, the rat, shameful. the Islamists, the radical Islamists are really in a better position to project power into Africa through Sudan into Central Asia through Afghanistan now than we are. So yeah. this is something that should concern sure. Americans, just beyond our, yeah, our values. Yeah, this, this guy, Hamedi, is one of the guys that's been doing it. I mean, he, he controls all kinds of gold mines, and he has all kinds of, of uh, soldiers, and he's you know been in, he was heavily involved in what's going on in Chad and, and in other places. And, of course, Sudan was providing um, person people and aircraft and everything to to the Saudis to to fight in Yemen against the Houthis, and um, but apart from those areas, I mean, they are they were responsible and continue to be responsible for just churning out all kinds of uh, radicals through this Islamic university. You know, it is frustrating when you look at our own government has is funding the wrong people and everywhere now from Afghanistan to Sudan. And here we are with our little NGOs and alternative media trying to advocate on, on behalf of the vulnerable. And it's, it's striking. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. You, you, were you, did you have, were you bar mitzvah in the (laughs) eighties? Uh, I was never bar mitzvah. Okay. Well, I know your dad is Jewish. You have a Jewish father. And the reason I ask that, did you go to bar mitzvahs in the eighties? I have been to some. Do you remember that they would have two bar mitzvahs at a time? There'd be for the young man receiving, you know, his bar mitzvah, and then it would be for some boy in the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain because yeah, they were. Do you, right. do you remember that? That's, yes. And what happened? Our yep. churches have forgotten the vulnerable around the world. Our government has forgotten the vulnerable around the world. Our media has forgotten. Yep the vulnerable around the world. It's really, and, it, and worse than that, it's as if every center of power is organizing itself against the most vulnerable. And then there we are, here we are trying to advocate on behalf of them from the Nuba Mountains to uh, Afghanistan. And it, and it gets to be a bit overwhelming. So for people listening, yeah. you know, as a young man, you went to Africa. How did you choose to spend your most of your adult life now, I, all of it in, in Africa and specifically serving Sudan. Well, um, that's a, 
that's a long conversation, and I'm not sure if, if I really chose it myself or, or if it just kind of um, overcame me. Um, but uh, for sure, my dad was 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 the biggest influence in my life and, my, and the biggest hero in my life. And he was a Cold Warrior, and he was involved in a lot of those Cold War struggles that included and involved Africa and the frontline states. And Angola was one of the frontline states. It was one of the the uh, um, uh, big uh, places during the Cold War. And um, because of my dad's work, I, I traveled with him. I also studied and read about Southern Africa. And um, for the first half of my life, I was really focused on Angola and Southern Africa because of that. And somehow, uh, I guess in 1995, I was working on Capitol Hill and one day, a seven-foot, seven-inch-tall man walked into my office. I was I was working on the Africa subcommittee for my boss, who is a congressman from North Carolina. And this guy, Manute Bull, walked into my office wearing a, a homemade purple suit. And he was the first one to uh, to sit down and talk with me about what was happening in Sudan and sort of penetrate my consciousness about Sudan. And, um, of course, Manute Bull was... Uh, um, passed away a few years ago, but he was he was in the NBA. He was one of the I think he was the tallest uh, uh, player in the NBA, um, and he was a real advocate for his people. And um, a couple of years after that visit, I ended up traveling to the Nuba Mountains. And after I visited the Nuba Mountains, and I met some very heroic people there, um, there was no way out. That was it. So the yep. Nuba, Nuba Mountains was the first place you went because we, when I met you, you were really working in Sudan, and you ended, I mean, in Darfur. You ended yeah. up bringing me and Eduardo Verastegui to Darfur, um, but it was the Nuba Mountains yeah. was your and you you'd flown there from Angola, right? It would just happen to be you went to volunteer no, no, to serve I Red Cross. Actually, no, no, I actually, um, it was totally a, the, the only way it was related to Angola was that I had started persecution projects as a initially as a an advocacy campaign to raise awareness about persecution and genocide and um angola was one of the countries that i wanted to um uh draw attention to because that's where my heart was but i somehow got redirected to sudan so i made a trip to sudan uh it was like a relief mission and fact finding type trip and on that first trip i traveled to the Nuba mountains i met with this guy uh, Yosef Kuameki, who was sort of the George Washington of the Nuba Mountains, who's who's no longer with us. Um, and through him, I met another guy named Abdulaziz Adamohilu, who's the, the current leader of the Nuba Mountains. And I began to understand more about just the courage of these people. And I also met with all kinds of people from the church and, and heard their testimonies about how they had been persecuted because of their faith. And, um, you know, as I, as I got to know people there, I was drawn in. And, um, uh, like I say, I'm, I've been stuck ever since. Well, praise God. Yeah. I think you didn't choose God chose it. We're glad you're there. I know it's, you've sacrificed a lot. It's not the safest place in the world. In fact, didn't Minute Bull pass away while, doing work in Sudan. He went back home. Uh, well, he did a lot of uh, humanitarian work to try to help Sudan, but he actually, he had kind of a tragic ending. He, he had all kinds of health problems. Being seven foot seven inches tall is not easy. He had a car accident, um, which crippled him. Um, he ended up uh, uh, having, because of his height, other uh, different health issues and, the medication that they gave him for one problem caused another problem, and he ended up having, I think, kidney failure. And um, I believe he died in 2010 in at UVA Medical Hospital. Um, and I, I was in touch with him, um, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, he he had a real tragic, uh, lived a real tra had a real tragic end. Um, but he was he had a good heart, and he really. He really had a desire to, you know, he was a very generous guy. He pretty much lost everything that he made in the NBA trying to help his own people. Oh, he lived a, he lived a beautiful life and the fullness of it. 
So we know we're going to pray. We're going to add the people of Sudan to our prayers. What else can we do, Brad? Go, go to your website. Yeah, no, I. Yeah, we we have a website, persecutionproject.org, and um, we are involved in um, medical projects as well as uh, church and community projects, relief and shelter projects. When we when the war, the current war in the Nuba Mountains started in 2011. Uh, 10 years ago, there were a million people in Southern Kordofan. Now there's 2.2 million people. And most of that, most of those people have come back in the last three years as a result of fleeing the unrest and the collapse in other parts of Sudan. So there's a great need uh, to respond to um, help, especially help the church as they respond to a lot of these Nuba that are coming back to the Nuba Mountains from Khartoum and Omdurman. Um, we've seen, uh, every, every day, every week, people are coming back. Um, uh, we are in the process of building a new referral hospital. We support 260 medical facilities in the Nuba mountains for those 2.2 million people, including seven rural hospitals. And the most recent rural hospital is one that we started building in 2015. At the time, people were the patients were under trees. The IV lines were hanging from trees. Now we have a 20-acre facility with five buildings on it, and we just completed a maternity ward. We're working on uh, developing um, some other wards. And um, so there's a lot that can be done. Do you want to talk about the project we're going to do together and what we're going to need to raise in the next couple of months? Or save that for another show? Yeah. Well, I know. I mean, we can. We I don't. We don't need to go into great detail now. But yeah, we've got this hospital, Jagaber Referral Hospital. We've just completed a maternity ward, and one of the next things that we hope to do, and we encourage, and we we're grateful for uh, the participation of the Vulnerable Peoples Project in helping us develop a radiology department. We've got a few pieces of equipment already. And we have some technical experts and medical people who've come alongside and they want to help us develop the capacity for this uh, radiology department so that we can, um, you know, store all the images on the right kind of system and um, uh, have the power set up done properly, have the internet, the internet, have telemedicine, all those kind of things so that, so that we can really improve the standard of care uh, in the Nuba Mountains. So that's, that's, what we've started and and i hope we'll get a chance to talk more about it yeah, in let's the coming do, days yeah let's do it in, in the next couple of weeks i think as we go into the end of the year and giving tuesday i want to do a whole show on that and um, i know we're going to do a big fundraiser early next year but i'm hoping we can get this thing funded before we even have that event brad um give, how that do people was, follow you again thanks Jason. persecutionproject.org um i'm not the um, I'm, unfortunately, I'm doing a bad job of uh, of advertising for us. I know we have a presence on Facebook, and um, and we have our website, and uh, you can go to our website to get information about us, and also reach out to us. I'm going to put your website uh, in the show notes, and I would ask everyone. Uh, I know you've, we've been asking for a lot of support lately for Afghanistan. This is Persecution Project is an organization you should support, and. And if, even if you can only support it nominally, it's good to get on their mailing list because you guys have very informative mailings and they also have a lot of beautiful stories. So I always look forward to getting um, my letters in the mail from you guys. So I think everyone listening, make any kind of any, donation of any level will get you on your mailing list, right, Brad? And once you're on that mailing list, you guys yes, will get, you'll get to stay up to date. Thank you, Jason. We appreciate it. All right, Mr. Phillips, I am headed out. And on Friday, if everything goes according to plan, you will see me on in international news in a good way, kind of. I'm sure some folks won't be happy. Some bad folks won't be happy with what we're up to. But on Thursday, we have a big initiative we're launching, and we're hoping it captures the, the attention of the world. So look forward to that. Awesome. All right, brother. Well, proud of all that you're doing, Jason. Thank you for your leadership, and thank you for the chance to share the story. No, I greatly admire you and the work that you do. And, you know, you live the, uh, you live it, you're there. And um, here we are, you know, I just a privilege for me to share your stories. So keep up the good work, Mr. Phillips, and we'll talk soon. I'm going to sell pillows. Thanks, brother. God All, right. Bless. All right, peace out. All right, guys. Um, the Persecution Project Foundation is uh, one organization you should support. So I'm going to put their, their um, 
website in the show notes and make a donation of any size. I do that with a lot of groups. I'll make a $5, $10 donation. Even if it's not a main cause that I'm, I feel called to support, I do want to receive their, their mailings and I want to cover the cost of my mailings. I think, you know, I want to, I don't want that. I don't want it to cost. I don't want them to spend money informing me. Uh, yet it's not, I'm pretty disciplined in my philanthropy. And so if that's not my main thing, I give them some donation. And then what happens is as I cultivate a real interest and knowledge in what these groups do, then they do take a bigger place in my support. So I would ask that everyone listening, go into the show notes and make a donation of any size because you're going to want the information um, that Brad and the Persecution Project Foundation is putting on and what is happening in Sudan. I'm about to hit the road. I wish I could tell you what we are up to, but we have an education initiative that we are going to launch this week, and we'll talk about it later, later in the week or depending on how busy things get next week. Um, but trust me, it's, it's, it's going to be exciting. It's going to educate a lot of folks, and it's going to be fun. Um, so look for me on, in the news on Thursday or Friday, me and my cohorts here at the Vulnerable People Project. This episode, as always, is being brought to you by my pillow. You need, I mean, I shouldn't even have to tell you, you should already own Mike Lindell's amazing pillow, especially as we're going into the winter. This is an amazing pillow um, with the Giza Dream sheets and the mattress topper, you are going to be set for the change of season. So you go to MyPillow.com, you click on the radio listener square, you use the code Jones. I used to tell you, or you could use the code Metaxas, and then I had Eric on the show a couple weeks ago, and his code isn't Metaxas, which makes sense. It's Eric with a K, I believe. You could use that, but I want you to use Jones. Use Jones, click on the radio listener square, get all of those deep discounts, and I always ask you to become a monthly supporter of the Vulnerable People Project. Uh, but this week, instead, if you're thinking of doing that, I would ask that you just go to um, the Persecution Project Foundation, click on that link in the show notes, and make a donation. I don't even know if they have monthly opportunities to support or support them monthly. I cannot recommend that organization to you highly with more, more, uh, more love and affection. I think it's one of the most important organizations in the world. They are the gold standard. Um, look in the show notes, click through, and make a donation. All right, until next time, it's the Jason Jones Show. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Ooh.